my name is Abby, and I'm a volunteer here at Recovery Radio. If you want to feel good about yourself today, I have a suggestion that will help you. Just go to www.recoveryradio.net and click the Donate button. Then, give an amount that makes you feel good. You'll be amazed by your own awesomeness all day. Can you all see me? I'm standing flat-footed. <laughs> That's what you call the big and the little of it, you know. My name is Virginia, and I'm a member of the Queen City Al-Anon Family Group in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm glad to be with you this morning. I want to thank the committee for the, for the nice room and the basket of fruit and the privilege of being here and sharing. And I do want to say that to Bob, I didn't have a chance to speak with him, but I'm going to. And there's only one thing that I thought, now wait a minute, when he was talking. He said, if you want to know who are the alcoholics in the room, look at who's happy. Hell, he doesn't know what happiness is. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm no longer so sick I have to be sicker than someone else, and this isn't any competition. But I want to tell you that my experience with alcoholics, and I've experienced them all of my life, I'm like a blue serge suit that picks up lint. I pick up drunks, you know. But... Um, you know, I, I think alcoholics have a lot to be grateful for with blackouts. They don't remember a lot. But people like me, we remember the whole deal, you know. And if you want to know happiness, it's us. I don't, you know, really. I think sometimes we are afraid to live and let live. I think that down deep inside there's been this misplaced sense of responsibility for what went on in all the drinking years that when the drinking stops, we can't just let go and live and be happy. It's like we haven't earned it or we haven't deserved it or we're afraid that if we're let loose and just relax and enjoy, it'll stop. And it may stop if all of my happiness is dependent on what others do, but it doesn't have to stop as long as it depends on what I do and what I don't do. Well, I'm a native Marylander. How about that? You wouldn't know it, would you? But I am. I was born in Talbot County, Maryland a few years ago. Um, 40 plus, <laughs> as Beth said the other night. And uh, we had a real good friend of the family named Fletcher Hanks, and he used to do cartoons and oil paintings and things. And he always referred to it as the duck hunting liquor drinking country. And I believe that was true because my earliest memories were of people happy drinking and fighting drinking and passed out drinking and bleeding knees from automobiles drink, uh, automobile wrecks while drinking and boats run aground and run ashore. And I can remember frustration very early. I didn't know the word for it, but I remember the feeling because people would get out in a rowboat. They were always going to row over to Ottawa, which was right across the water from us. And they'd lose one oar, and they'd sit out there in the damn water and go round and round in circles. And I'd think, how dumb, you know, how dumb. Every year, this family that was relatively well-to-do, and we had enough income from investments and all that kind of good stuff, that no one went out to work. And, you know, people in that situation don't seem to take task with what they or face the reality of what's going on in their lives because they have someone they can pay to take over their responsibilities. And instead of being the most fortunate of people, sometimes I think they're the least fortunate because they don't know how to do for themselves. 
But every year we used to spend a month with our maternal grandparents in western Pennsylvania. And one summer I went on that usual trip, uh, vacation, and didn't return to Maryland. Now this was a family in which children were seen and not heard. And if there was anything you wanted to know, don't bother to ask the question because if they wanted you to know, they would have already told you and your question would not be answered. And I didn't ask any questions. We, it was just that was it. We weren't going back to Maryland. Now, I know now that the Depression had hit and this family got wiped out. And we lost that place down there as a lot of people lost a lot of things at that time. I started, I know now, through repeated fourth-step inventories, developing a reverse snobbery because I saw these talented, well-educated, socially prominent people go to pieces. And I thought that if you had money or social position or education, I didn't want to be like you. You see, I found out since I've been in the program, it's perfectly all right to have those things if it isn't the only thing you have. But they didn't have any inner resources on which to rely. And that was what their problem was, but I didn't know that. My father never left the Eastern Shore, and he died there. And my, my mother did leave. And for a long time after I came into the program, I said my mother abandoned me. And I've come to realize that isn't what she did. That's what I felt. Because it wasn't her intention not to return, but she didn't. And I spent a lot of years wondering what was wrong with me. And after I was married and we had three children of our own, that question was even a greater mystery to me. How could you walk off and leave your children? and never come back and never wonder if they're fed or clothed or well or what's going on with them. It never crossed my mind to look to her or any inadequacies in her for that. It was what was wrong with me. The biggest ego trip of all, when you think that everything that is wrong is your fault or everything that is right is your fault. But it's a very negative thing when you think everything is wrong is your fault. Now, I also know I was egotistical because I wasn't an only child. I can't remember ever thinking, what's wrong with my brothers, my sister and I, that this happened. It was what was wrong with me. And as I grew, and I grew, and I grew, <laughs> you know, you talk about feeling out of place. When I was in the eighth grade, I was as tall as I am now. And as like my husband likes to point out, I wasn't as wide, but <laughs> I was as tall as I am now, and I was a misfit. All my friends in school were like Bridget over here. They could walk under my arm with my arm held out. And I felt awkward and ill at ease. And I was different because when my report cards or things to school were signed, it wasn't the same name that I had. And I wasn't living in a home with a mother and a father. And I felt very, very sorry for myself. My husband said that during his years of active alcoholism, there were times he couldn't buy booze. And so he got introduced to turpenhydrate. And he said he drank enough turpenhydrate if he ever, he'd never cough again as long as he lives. <laughs> well, I served myself enough pity that I ought never to have any need for any pity from you or me or anyone else as long as I live. These grandparents died within seven months of one another when I was 11, and I became a ward of the Orphan's Court of the state of Pennsylvania. And I, it was very lonely. There was no personal contact. They gave you a dollar a day to live on, and you got a check the first of the month, and if it didn't last, that was tough. 
and I knew what it was like to be to be hungry. I knew what it was like to have holes in the shoes. And I used to sit in that home that still had some of the lovely furnishings from the from the past and be angry and resentful at those people that hadn't been more thrifty and taken care of things better or provided for the children that they had. And I became very angry at God, but I did not face that anger because you don't be angry at God, you know. That's a no-no, but I was. When I was 17, I was socially mature, but I was a dumb Dora. I'm the type of girl that would sit in the back of steady halls, and I'm sure there's somebody in here who used to do this, and the guys would tell dirty jokes, and everybody would laugh, and I'd just sit there, and they'd say, boy, look at that Virginia, she can keep a straight face. Well, it wasn't any effort, I didn't get the joke. <laughs> but I'd sit there, you know, just kind of smug, you know, hoping nobody would ask me a question that I wouldn't be able to answer. I approached the orphan's court when, at that time and asked permission to leave Pennsylvania and go to school. Now I relate when I hear alcoholics talk about taking geographical cures because I know now, but I did not know then, that I uh, related unhappiness with Maryland and Pennsylvania and I wanted to leave. And I wanted to go as far as I could and I did. I went to Southern California and I was to live there for the next three years and during those three years I was due to a considerable amount of drinking that gave me pause to reflect when I came here whether I was in the right room or not. But perhaps I'll get to that in a moment. I was rooming with a girl from North Carolina and um, she was going to return and I said to her, wait and I'll go with you. At that time my eldest brother was in the South Pacific and my younger brother was um, in the European theater and my sister was following a GI around the country and there wasn't any home and there weren't any there weren't any people living of the generation older than uh, than we except an uncle who to his dying day and who died in Martinsburg at the VA Center uh, isn't it strange how the circles of life take us but at any rate uh, vowed to his dying day that he didn't have a drinking problem but if I've ever seen a drunk it was him if I ever saw a dry drunk it was him but that's my my feeling but anyhow um, I came to North Carolina and very shortly thereafter I was to meet the man I was to marry now he says says that I asked him and I say that he asked me and it really doesn't matter for 20 years we both knew we made a mistake but neither one of us would admit it <laughs> Uh, I remember, I, I, you know, we hear a lot about script writing and planning things and saying, writing, saying, what, figuring out what we're going to say and knowing what the response is going to be and then what we're going to say and all this. And I decided, not knowing that I had great need, a great need to be needed, on Friday night I was going to tell him I was going back to California. And of course his line was, oh no, don't go, I love you, I need you. And I said, um, Buck, I'm going back to California. And he said, when are you leaving? <laughs> well, my false pride was such that I couldn't say, oh, I was just kidding. I wanted to see what you would say. I'm not going. Saturday morning, I went downtown. I bought a ticket, and I went back to California. And he came to California and got me. I sometimes forget to tell that, and it's too good to forget. <laughs> see, he came for me 3,000 miles. But anyhow... We came back to North Carolina and we were going to work and put things together to have a home, the things you need to keep house and all. 
Now, my husband came from a good family. They were a land-poor family, but they were good people. And they were a little uh, apprehensive, shall I say, of their dear boy marrying this girl from they didn't know where. And because of their attitude, which was always very kind and always very uh, polite, but with reservation, we decided to go ahead and get married. And you know there were a lot of years I wish they had won. I wish they had talked him out of it. <laughs> but we got married and I thought, now I have someone to love and someone to love me and everything's going to be fine. You see, I have the reverse snobbery. I don't know I have it. I have, you know, I don't know a lot of things about me to this day, but I've learned a lot since I've been here, too. I'm not interested in the fine home and the cars and the clothes and all that jazz. I've seen people with that, and they weren't happy people. When their doors closed, it was, it was terrible, and I didn't want those things in my life. But Beck and I drank together before we married, and we drank together after we married. And during those years, I, used to, I started asking myself the question, what's different? We go to the same places. Now, you must realize in these years, North Carolina did not even have liquor stores. If you bought liquor, it was in South Carolina or from a bootlegger, and there were no bars or anything of that kind. So there was a lot of effort into drinking in those years. And we would go to these lovely places. <laughs> I'll tell you, sometimes I walk around rooms like this and I see people all, you know, shiny and pretty and clean and well-dressed. And I think, I wonder if you went to some of the joints we went to. <laughs> we wouldn't be caught dead there today, and not because of alcoholism, just because how horrible they were. But I used to think, what's different about me? We go out and we drink together. We're in the same joints. We're drinking the same same liquor, and I don't get in the trouble you get into. What's different? And I get up the next day and I go about my business, and you don't. So I came, I reasoned it out. That's dangerous for me. I reasoned it out. Well, it must be because I'm higher morals, stronger character, more intelligent, more intellectual. That's the difference. Now, that's fertile ground for I-know-it-all-ism. It really is. Now, in the next few years, we were to go into business for ourselves, and we were very successful. And two things happened when we went into business, one for Buck and one for me. You see, unbeknownst to those around me, in spite of what image I projected, inside, I was not, I was very confused. There had been a lot of things happening that I didn't know how to handle, and I couldn't explain. And so running this business gave me a sense of importance, and I became an achiever in running it because it was successful. And it gave my husband the time and the money to do all of those things alcoholics love to do. You know, well, you know, I don't have <laughs> I know, if you don't want to know his story, you ask him to talk. I'm not telling his story. You know, believe me, I lived through it with him. I don't want to. <laughs> but anyhow, within, and I don't know about in this part of the country, but in our part of the country in the early 1950s, to pay taxes on $85,000 a year was a handsome income. And within three years of the time we had paid that, I borrowed $100 to leave that town. And during those next three years, a lot of things had happened to us. We progressed downward. I can remember Beck was gone, and I said to myself, all right, when he comes back, 
I'm not going to fuss. I'm not going to say, let's sit down and talk. I wasn't going to say anything. I was going to ignore him. Because by this time, we'd been through all of those things, you know, like I'd meet him at the door, I'm glad you're home. I'd meet him at the door, what in the hell are you doing home? I would um, not meet him at the door, I'd run jump in bed and pretend that I was asleep. And there's two reasons for that, and the one either you understand or you don't. And the other one... <laughs> And the other one was so I could say the next day, what time did you come home? And he would say three, and I'd say, you're a damn liar. It was five. And I never saw what a liar I was, that I was supposed to be asleep, yet I knew what time he came home. Um, during those years, I used to fix elaborate Italian dinner, uh, um, spaghetti and all that jazz for he and his drinking friends. I would meet his drinking friends at the door and run them off and dare them to darken our door again. Uh, I have been known to call the police to them. Um, I've been known to hit them over the head. I have been known to do lots of things. You know, sometimes I think there is an image of the members of the Al-Anon family groups that is totally inaccurate. Everyone that is in Al-Anon has not been sweet and loving and euphoric and kind you know I hear alcoholics talk about no one knows what it's like to hurt like we do no one knows about anger like we do no one knows about resentment like we do the hell you do <laughs> I mean I'm not in competition with you and all I can say in truth if it is greater than what I experienced then sincerely I say God have mercy on you because what I had what I experienced was enough for me but I see non-alcoholic members of the Al-Anon family groups live through situations that totally would baffle an alcoholic I see things changing I see our society changing and where, where non-alcoholics are not living in active alcoholism, especially the women, because they now can support themselves and their children and they're not finding it necessary to take abusive, unacceptable behavior in order that their children are fed and clothed. But the sad part of it is, is what happens to the individuals when those things do happen. Anyhow, I got off track there. Um, we were in business for ourselves and it got drunk up. Beck um, had been away drinking and I didn't know where he was and, and uh, I decided when he came back I was going to ignore him and I was just going to go about my usual thing, you know. And he came back and about six weeks later the doctor told me I was pregnant. Now that's failure. Now if you're not going to even speak to somebody and then you're pregnant, that's failure. And again, if you don't understand, that's your problem, you know. And I remember saying to Beck, I need to go home and take care of myself. And he told me to go home, and I did, uh, to our home. And that business got drunk up, you know. And then there came a, a time when, when Beck went off on about the 1st of October one year, and I didn't see him or, or hear from him. I heard of him. You know, I don't know about here, but down our way, we have people that call you and say, I think you'd want to know, you know. <laughs> And I must say that I think there's a special corner in hell for them because they, they never give you anything constructive or comforting. They just give you more things to worry about and more things that you are powerless over. They don't comfort you one iota. And many times they don't even know the truth. 
I remember one time somebody went to Buck and told him he thought it was terrible that I was riding around town in his car and letting another man drive it. And our car was parked across the street and my husband could see it. Yet this person had brought this. So I think it's important for me to remember and only share and repeat what I know is true, not what you have told me. That's important in the program, too, that I not just repeat what you've said. I better know it from experience because it isn't mine until I have experienced it. Well, anyhow, Buck was gone and we didn't have any money and I couldn't get a job in this town, you know, because of his reputation. Didn't have anything to do with the fact that I was totally undependable as well. Didn't have anything to do with the fact that somebody would call me and say, Buck was a pop and ashes at Myrtle Beach, I had to go and see if he was. And in the process, leave a job or leave my children and go and see. But it was because of him. And I'd returned to Charlotte and I'd found a place for the girls and I to live and I'd uh, gotten work. And I was back in South Carolina finding, moving enough furniture to furnish a small place. And it was Christmas Eve. And my husband returned. And I know that it's physically impossible for your heart to move into your throat. But my heart was here. And it was, it was beating so loud, it was like somebody doing this over my ears. You know, I couldn't even hear for my heart beating. And I thought, he's going to be mad. Now, isn't that sick? But he's going to be mad. And he came in the house, and I remember saying, I'm not leaving here to leave you. I'm leaving here because I couldn't get a job in this town to support me and the children. And I've gotten a place in Charlotte, and if you'd like to go with us, you can. And he hesitated a few moments, and then he said, all right, let's go. Now, you see, I thought, oh, great, he still loves us. In spite of my doing this without consulting him, he wasn't there to consult anyhow, but anyhow, in spite of that, he still loves us. And after he got sober in AA, I found out he figured he was broke and the furniture was loaded. Why not? <laughs> so if you are comforted by something that someone says, don't disturb it. Just accept it and be comforted by it. Because that, that did comfort me a lot in the next few years. And in those next years, a lot of things happened. Because you see, when we got to Charlotte, I thought, it can't get worse. Isn't that the silliest thing you ever heard in your life? <laughs> of course it can get worse. It all, it's a progressive family disease. It always gets worse. But with the program, it can get better. And I've got to remember that. But the only way it gets better is with a program of recovery, in my estimation. And, you know, I kid a lot about a lot of things. And one of the things I kid about a lot is that there's no justice. There's no justice. I ended up having the shock treatments, not him. I got locked. I've heard alcoholics say, where are all these families that have lived through alcoholism with us? They don't end up with shock treatments. They don't end up in jail. Well, I want to tell you, buddies, here I am. I did. <laughs> I got locked up. You know, I'm not proud of that, but I'm not ashamed of it either. It's just a fact of life. And I think lots of times that we don't speak openly and honestly of the reality of what happened in our lives because of a new type of pride. And I think when it comes to pride, if we have pride in sharing, we can be in trouble because we may not give somebody something to identify with that will allow them to know they're not alone in the world. Well. We moved back to Charlotte and everything was going to be fine and it wasn't. And then I'm going to come to a Monday. 
I don't know where my husband's sitting. He usually waves his watch at me when it's time for me to sit down. <laughs> he'll pick up his watch. He'll go, ah. <laughs> I want to come to a Monday. I want you to know on one of my first inventories, I had that I was thrifty. Now, I knew I was thrifty because I didn't buy Tupperware for leftovers. I used mayonnaise jars, thank you, and pickle jars and ketchup bottles, and I saved tinfoil and bread wrappers and boxes and strings. And I loved it when someone sent a card and forgot to sign it because then I could use it. And uh, I ironed gift wrap, you know. And I would take scissors and cut where it was folded and save those nice smooth things. And I saved clothes I could no longer wear in case I lost weight and I could wear them. And I saved clothes I could no longer wear in case I gained weight and could wear them. I really was thrifty, you know. And when, after I was in the program, my first sponsor said, Virginia, I want you to investigate two things. And I said, all right, what's that? She said, I want you to investigate thrifty and fearful. And you are fearful, not thrifty. Because if you believe one day at a time doing to the best of your ability what you think your higher power would have you do, you don't have to be a pack rat. I never did like a lot of the things she said to me. <laughs> but anyhow, I went in the kitchen this Monday noon to fix lunch. And that wasn't exactly the high point of my day anyhow to cook for a drunk, you know, and uh, to cook, period, you know. Uh, I'm not, there's nothing virtuous about me at all. I don't see anything about housekeeping that's virtuous or high-minded or anything. I think it's drudgery. But anyhow, I reached in the refrigerator and I got this jar out with leftovers in it. You know, you only throw leftovers away when they turn green. And then it's legal. The children in China will not starve if the leftovers are green. But if they aren't, those children are going to starve. You know. Anyhow, I got this jar and I put it under my arm and I leaned over for something else. And the lid wasn't secure and it came off and everyone, all the content went all over the kitchen floor. And I, in what was my normal voice, said at the top of my lungs, God, what else do you expect of me? That damn drunk and now this mess. And hit me, he wasn't drunk. He wasn't drunk. He wasn't drunk. He was sitting in the living room waiting for me to fix lunch. How long has it been since he's not been drunk? Where is it he said he'd been going? Sober people have been phoning him. I knew they were sober. I can smell a drunk on the phone till this day. <laughs> and well-dressed, sober people were coming by the office to see him. And the baby, he had been going out every night and coming home every night when he said he would come home not drinking. The greatest amends any alcoholic can ever make to their family. Now, we won't take it very well in the beginning because it rocks our cage. You know, living in active alcoholism for me was like being out in a small boat fishing. You're standing up. You don't stand stiff-legged because of the wake of another boat or a tree limb or a, a root. You have your knees bent. You're prepared for any eventuality. You know, you go with the boat. Whatever, you know, whatever the conditions prevail, that's what you're prepared for. Anything. You're like this. And he went and got sober, and I'm still like this. You know. And I started thinking. Because you see, the most traumatic thing that happened to me that afternoon 
was the realization that something I had believed for a long time was not true. I had believed that if he would get sober, we would be all right. And he was sitting in there not drinking, and my life hadn't changed one bit. I thought, well, he's obviously doing a con job on them. They wouldn't be calling him if they knew him like I know him. I'll bet he hasn't told them what a good wife I've been, how I've stood by him through thick or thin, how I've kept this family together, how I have kept our business going. You know, I always was comparing the best of me against the worst of him and came out like a rose every time. I'm going too. I went to jail with you. I went to the bootleggers with you. I made money good and had a good life with you, was broke with you. I'm going too. Well, you couldn't just say, I'm going with you. That was unheard of by this time in our lives. You had to have reasons. You had to justify. I'm your wife. I have a right to go. And I started thinking all my reasons. About 7.30, my husband smoked a pipe at that time. And he, about 7.30, he came in. And he's lighting his pipe. And he says, well, I'll see you about 9.30 or 10. And I stood up and I said, well, I'm going too. Had all my reasons ready. Just, you know, like a Gatling gun, ready to go. And he said, all right, come on. I could have killed him. <laughs> well, we went out and we got in the car. Now, I have an I know it allism, and a know-it-all can't ask questions. There's no one else in the car. I don't know where we're going, but I can't ask him because then he'll know I don't know, and I don't want him to know I don't know. <laughs> So like I'm a blowfish out of waters. We go across the town. I'm, you know, I'm about to explode, but uh. and we get out and we walk in this building and he pointed to a stairwell and he said, they meet down there. I don't know who they, they were, but I died dead right on the spot for it, asked him. Now, I know that the God of my understanding was working in my life that day. I know it because that was a night of closed AA and Al-Anon family groups meetings. I'm so grateful I didn't get to an open meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous before I got to the Al-Anon family groups. I would have become a non-alcoholic member of open AA. And they're a pain to everybody. You sit around places like this and somebody will say, no, 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 something way out, you know, left field. And somebody will say, well, honey, how long have you been sober? Oh, I'm not an alcoholic. And they'll say, oh, well, it's just like an Al-Anon. Get your terminology right, folks. You're not a member of Alcoholics Anonymous unless you go to meetings, right? You're not a member of the Al-Anon family groups unless you go to meetings. We use the same 12 steps with the exception of one word. If you are not pursuing a program of recovery in one or the other, you cannot refer to yourself as either an AA or an Al-Anon. You know, a marriage... You know, it just isn't, it just isn't, uh, it gives Alan on a black eye. God knows we've had enough of them. I mean, uh, I shouldn't have said that. Anyhow, I went down. I know God of my understanding was working that night because when they introduced our speaker that night, it was a lady named Ann. Now, I don't remember how they opened that meeting with a surrender prayer and the purpose and read the steps. We always do, so I know they still do. And I'm still attending the group that I went to, started that first night. Um, two of the men in the Al-Anon group, she and I were, this lady and I were just talking. 
Couldn't have been at about Al-Anon because I didn't know I was where I was. And you know, a know-it-all is like an alcoholic that's been in a blackout. When we don't know, we are never more humble or more receptive to what you have to say. Because we want you to tell us what the deal is. And I found that in... My, my husband is always bringing drunks home in various stages of drunkenness. And I believe me, I've, I've watched them not knowing what went on and how attentive they are to what you say till they figure out. And I've seen people like me that can't admit they don't know something give that same attention. But I was talking to this lady and two of the men in our Al-Anon group turned and said, won't you ladies join us? And, excuse me, she and I turned and were seated and they opened the meeting and then a little bit somebody said, Anne's going to share with us tonight. And this lady got up and she went up front. Now, I don't know anything about her program of recovery. I remember her story. I remember what happened to her. I remember what brought her to the Al-Anon family groups. And, but you know, the reason God was working in my life because that night was the only time I ever saw Anne. I've been to a lot of meetings, virtually every state in the United States and all the provinces of Canada. And I have been involved in service work extensively. And I've never seen Anne again. It was sufficient that she was in one room, one night, willing to share, according to our purpose, to welcome and comfort the relatives of alcoholics, learn to understand and encourage the alcoholic, and to grow spiritually ourselves through the 12 steps. I heard her share, and I thought she was crazy, because she was talking out loud about things that I wouldn't even look at straight on inside my, my head. You know, you know something, but it's kind of like you're looking over here, but you're not. And in my head, these things that had happened and these things I had done and these things I was feeling, I wouldn't even look at. But here she was standing up talking about them. I thought, she's crazy, but I knew I was. I had papers to prove it, so that made two of us, you know. And I was attracted. Now, you see, that lady was a visitor to that group, and she thought I belonged to the group. And because I was talking to her, the group thought I had come to the meeting with her. So I did not get that thing we spend so much time talking about, the newcomer welcome. The greatest welcome we can ever give anyone is honesty and a meeting that sticks to our purpose. And it will attract us because it attracted me. I didn't know the terminology, but it attracted me and I started going to meetings. I started also going to open meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I was more comfortable than I'd been, but I still wasn't real comfortable. Mercy, they were so good. They didn't say damn or hell or other things. And they, they, very few of them smoked, and no one admitted to having a drink of themselves. You know, they were all total teetotalers lifetime, apparently. No one talked about not liking police. No one talked about unpaid bills. No one talked about wanting to kill him if they could get away with it. No one talking about these things. And I was hearing things like, since John's been sober in AA and I've been in the Al-Anon family groups, we're just getting along beautifully. And I think, what am I not learning? What am I not hearing? Because it wasn't like that with us. we get in the car to go to a meeting and it was... I drive up to the meeting, open the car door. Hello, how are you? So glad to see you. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Go into the meeting and sit down. Yes. Oh, this beautiful program, this God-given program. 
this spiritual way of life. Oh, what it has done for me. Oh, I'm so grateful. Yes, yes. See you next week. See you Thursday. All right, get out and come. Now, what was it you were saying? <laughs> so we were missing the boat in my book, but I didn't know why we were missing the boat. So I saw two couples, and I thought, I'm going home with them, and if they sit in the corner when they eat dinner, I'm going to start sitting in the corner and eat dinner. No matter what they do, that's what I'm going to do, because they say their problems, their way of life, everything is so great. Well, I found out they were just as human as we were, you know. They, they were trying to always offer a program of attraction, and that's all well and good. But when you cannot believe in the good or the positive, we must be honest and share what it has really been like, because that's what we identify with, I think. At least that's what I identified with in Anne. But I still, I wasn't real comfortable with these people. I step on, kept on going, and I'm questioning whether or not I belong in the other room. And about that time, we had a deal going on down our way when you go into a meeting they are uh, an open AA meeting. You put a name on a, your name on a slip of paper, and for a quarter you get a chance on a big book. And one night I won a copy of the big book. Now it never crossed my mind to read books because no one was talking about us doing much reading or studying at all in those days. But when I got the copy, I read it and I found out where I belonged. And for those of you who may not know, Al-Anon isn't even mentioned in there because it wasn't in existence at the time. But when it described the alcoholic, etc., 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 I knew I belonged in Al-Anon. I was experiencing by this time a lot of jealousy and envy and confusion because everybody was saying, Hey, Buck, that's great. Three months. Wonderful. Oh, Buck, six-month chip. That's great. Keep on. Keep on. Nine months. Wow, Buck, that's great. And I'm thinking, what about me? What about me? What about me? Because I was afraid and I was lonely and I was confused and I was really a failure because after all of my efforts that were very sincere, I had not been able to achieve what a bunch of strangers had. So I was the bottom, bottom, bottom failure of the world. Went to another meeting and I heard a woman share. And she said she went to meetings simply to have the opportunity to dump her garbage. And she said every time after she'd dump her garbage, this lady would say to her, what have you tried the steps? She said she got so tired of hearing it, she decided she was going home and she was going to look into those steps. And then when the woman asked her, she'd say yes and they don't work. So she went home and she started with that attitude uh, looking into the steps. And she said things started changing for her. Well, light bulbs are going off for me because at this point I want something to change. I want my life to change. I have had the biggest disappointment you can have when my life didn't change with his sobriety. And I early on was very fortunate God was very good to me that he gave me many things. He gave me total freedom from fear that he would drink again. I never thought about him drinking or not drinking. That was a gift from my higher power. God also exposed me to people with lots of time in the program. And they were telling me a lot of things that I was really trying to listen to and adhere. But when I heard this woman about the steps, I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. 
And as I told you, I'm a dumb door. And I like when some when I go to a meeting and I say, "Boy, I'm really uptight. I'm you know I'm about to come out of my skin." And they say, "Easy does it," or "Let go and let God." You know, I don't understand when you're mad how you let go and let God in the same breath. I don't know how when you want to kill somebody you can release with love in the same breath. It eludes me. I've got to let go and after a while I can let God. I've got to release and after a while it can be with love. It's never simultaneous. I can't do it. Because when I'm angry, I'm just as drunk on emotion as any alcoholic is on booze. The unabridged, one of the unabridged dictionaries that I've used, the full definition of sobriety goes on from the obvious that we all know, but it goes on to say unaffected by prejudice and passion. It says that we will have them as human beings, but if we are indeed sober, they will not control our lives. And that's where the real meaning of the thing that we throw around with tongue and cheek about sober as a judge comes from. Because a judge worth his salt will leave his personal prejudices and passions outside of the courtroom and weigh the issues on what's presented. So drunken, the, the sobriety has to be achieved in more than a cork in the jug, and people that have never drank aren't necessarily enjoying sobriety. But I heard this lady, and I went home, and I got all of the books I could. I got the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I got the AA 12 and 12, and I got the Anonymous literature. And I would sit down and I would read everything on step one, and then I would close the books, and I would come to conclusions about that step at that time. And then I would move on to the second step, and I would read everything I could on the second step, and then I would put the literature up and I would come to conclusions about that second step at that time. It took me a long time to realize to come to conclusions about it at that time because uh, I stayed on one step for so long because I thought I had to do it perfect, do it right, total. And that isn't the way it is for me. I think probably of all of the literature that I have read, for me personally, the thing that had the greatest impact on my life was in the AA 12 and 12 on, on step four. I joined the human race. I found out I was a human being there. I found out I was not, I was conceived because a man and a woman went to bed, but that God created me. I found out there that God, I had these instincts I had were God-given instincts for love and acceptance and security. I found out there that God gives us a free reign to pursue them any way we want. But if I pursue them in an unhealthy way, it will warp my life and the lives of those around me. And I couldn't read that chapter fast enough. And it still has a great impact on my life. I started studying the steps, and I'm just going to walk through them with maybe one sentence about each one because I haven't got that much time. And it really doesn't matter that I don't. If you were willing and we had the time, we could sit here for days and talk. But you have, we each have to find our own program. We, all, we each have to do this one day at a time in our own lives. And that's why we just share with one another we do not give to one another the, a program. We have to find our own, and rightly so. The first step says we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. I found it difficult to admit that I was powerless over alcohol because I could take a drink or leave it alone. I rejected Alan on groups that altered that to say we admit we're powerless over the alcoholic because that isn't what the first step of the 12 steps of AA say. And our purpose says that we grow spiritually through those 12 steps. 
and my life have been unmanageable? Yes. And I used to think of particular times in my life where but from that point on forward it had been unmanageable. But now I've come to understand, yes, I am powerless over alcohol, but that isn't all. I'm powerless over time and place and circumstance. I'm powerless over you and I'm powerless over me. There's no God for me in the first step. My life is unmanageable and has always been unmanageable and always is every time I forget where I'm coming from and where my source of help is. And it isn't failure. At first I thought it was failure. It's the truth. I am not responsible for you, nor are you responsible for me. And if my husband or my children or my friends or my neighbors enjoy success, it's their success. And if they meet with failure, it is their failure. I am not the cause of anything in any other person, and neither is any other person the cause of what I am. Now, the first part of that was easy to give, but I didn't want to give the last part of it. You know, I, I didn't realize for a long time when I got off Buck's back I was freeing myself as well because I didn't want to get off his back. But anyhow, the first step tells me where I'm starting from, and it gives me personal freedom, and it tells me the whole world isn't my problem or my responsibility, but that I am my own problem and I am responsible for me. Step two says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I came to meetings. I came to, I awakened. And I came to believe in you and other people like you. And that, that power could restore me to sanity. I had no problems with the word insanity. Some people do. But I just give them time. When they're around long enough, they'll understand. There's, you know, it's insane to live 20 years with somebody that stays drunk. It's insane. It's absolutely, totally insane. Plus all the other things we do. <laughs> but anyhow, I came to believe. You see, I thought when my mother left and my father died and there weren't any fa wasn't any family and all this kind of stuff, I took something I had heard years ago that many are called and few are, few are chosen. I wasn't chosen. I took the sins of the forefathers will be second, suffered under the second and third generation. I'd think, what I came to believe in you first, and then when at, through you I was able to learn to believe in a higher power. I did come to believe that I could be restored to sanity because you said that you had been. And I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him. And I put that in the eye because you cannot turn my will and my life over to the care of God. I have to do it, nor can I turn yours. I remember toiling with this a while, but then it dawned on me as, as in time I get what I need and I learn what I need to learn when I'm willing to learn it, that um, all I do in this step is make the decision to become willing to let it be God's will and that it's over to his care. And these steps tell me where I'm starting from and what I'm starting from and how I can get there. And how I get there is through that putting action in that third step, starting with the fourth, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Not an exercise in self-condemnation, but a search for the truth. Not looking for good and bad, because if I'm happy and up, I'll find nothing but good. And if I'm depressed and blue and angry, I'll find nothing but bad. So good and bad or blame and should are words I don't like. 
because I think they are depressing words and I think they are negative words. I think a search for the truth. A friend told me one time, the truth is this, when you're taking an inventory, say you were inventorying a jewelry store, and under the counter you found a bushel of onions. Onions in a jewelry store? If they're in the jewelry store, you put them on the inventory of the jewelry store. It's not for you to decide whether they belong there or not. And that's the way when you take your inventory, whatever you what comes to mind after you've prayed about it, you put it down. Even though you think it doesn't belong there, it wouldn't have come to mind if it didn't belong there. So put it down. I started learning about words in this step because I find all of us use words we don't know the meanings of. We talk about things we, we really, we have impressions of meanings rather than meanings. I found out the difference between caused and contributed. I found out the difference between happiness and pleasure. I found out the difference between lots of words and it enhanced my understanding of the program and of myself. I took this written inventory and I admitted to God, to myself and another human being the exact nature of my wrongs. The first lady I went to when I was starting into it, her eyebrows went up into her hair and I backed off. Now, I either wasn't ready or she wasn't the one. But I started watching this other lady and I went to her and it wasn't over a cup of coffee at a convention and it wasn't over lunch in a restaurant. It was hours at her house. And we went over this written inventory of mine. And when I would reach a point I couldn't go on, she would share herself with me. And I knew the full meaning that day of acceptance because there was never any criticism or rejection or facial expression, body English, words, look in the eye, nothing except understanding and almost like a so what, you know. And that was for these things to come out. You know, somebody said one time they were real disappointed when they took their fifth step that there hadn't been any burning bushes and all this kind of stuff. I was glad because I thought if I ever talked about all this stuff, God zapped me. <laughs> See, I, I, I was still at that point when I thought God only knew about me what I told him. <laughs> Have you ever... Oh, you've been there. <laughs> After I had done this, she told me to go into the other room. And to think about steps six and seven, entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Not my removing, but my being willing and my being ready for him to do the removing. And for me to remember that it would be in God's time. And I found out God doesn't remove from me anything that there's a learning experience involved for me. I remember at this point reaching... I just hated the self-pity. I hated the whiny voice. I hated the pitiful, precious attitude that I was hearing coming out of my own mouth. And I went to talk to somebody, and I didn't know it was self-pity. I did not know that it was. I knew it hurt. I didn't like it, but didn't know what it was. And she suggested that I belong to the Red Ring Club. And I had not heard that expression. And I said, the Red Ring Club? She said, yes, you're sitting on the pity potty. <laughs> Oh, fine. I know up here what you do about pity. You can't be grateful and feel sorry for yourself at the same time. Someone home started on a gratitude list. Thank God for dirty dishes. We've got food to eat. Thank God for dirty ashtrays. I've got cigarettes to smoke. Thank God for laundry to do. It means I've got more than one outfit. I remember the time where I'd take my clothes off and wash them so I could wear them the next day. And to be clothed and have something to wash, hey, that's something to be grateful for. You know, there's just so much 
too be grateful for when I really stop dead still in my stand in my tracks and think about it. Thank God for my husband's sobriety. Thank God for the reuniting of our family with our children. Thank God for two feet and two legs, two eyes, two ears. Thank God for God. There's it goes on and on and on. But anyhow, I prayed in the fourth step a prayer that said that says, God grant me victory over my difficulties that it may be evidence of others of thy power. And when I prayed that prayer, I remember thinking, God, if you don't want me to change, that'll be all right. Because I had that time come to believe that God would give me whatever I needed to live the life he would have me lead. And no sooner had I prayed that than I knew it wasn't necessary. And so I came along to six and seven, you know, and I humbly asked God to remove all these shortcomings. I realized shortcomings and defects of character caused pain for me, and it was immaterial. It's absolutely unimportant to discuss the difference between. But the important part to me was the humbly ask. And I've heard people, and I bet you have too, that have said, if you mention humility, you don't have any. Well, I say, when you mention gratitude, then you don't have any. You can't isolate one emotion. But I guess what we, what, it depends on what we think about when we talk about humbly and humility. I think about honesty. Because I know that I have not earned nor I do I deserve what I have in my life today. A conscious contact with God and awareness of the, the sense of love and acceptance from total strangers in this room. We're strangers really in name only. But all of the things that I have, I know I haven't earned or deserved it. And, honest, and that honesty humbles me. I don't know about you, but it does me. The eighth step says we made a list of persons we had harmed, became willing to make amends to them all, and in the ninth step made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And my list started in the fourth step, and I did make direct amends. I became willing, and I made the direct amends. And to those people that have died that I cannot make direct amends to, I ask the God of my understanding, who I think is still in touch with all that he ever created, whether I am or not, to remove from them any memory of me if there is any there. And those people I don't know who they were that I harmed, I ask him to do the same thing. I tried to make direct amends to my husband as best I could and to our children, but there comes a time when you've done all you can do and that's that. But I think that's the time when you start living your amends. I'm not very good at that all the time. I'm not good at I'm not very good at all any of it all the time. My life is not like this in the program, just running along, you know. I think the only time I'll be like this is when I'm laid out. <laughs> then it'll be level. And then we come to the, the maintenance steps for me. Continue to take personal inventory, and when we're wrong, promptly admit it. And I have to promptly admit to myself first the truth, the full truth. You know, I've said I'm sorry when I wasn't sorry. I've said I wish I hadn't done that when I really didn't care. So I think I have to promptly admit honestly to myself the, you know, the things that are wrong and then go to see these people that I've harmed. And the 11th step to me is the happiness step. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry it out. And we all know the steps were written in past tense because those alcoholics turned around and looked and said, this is what we did when they were asked, what did you do? But I'm living now, today, so sought is yesterday, today I must see. 
I'm so grateful they weren't inspired to say found because seeking is an ongoing journey. And it's so simple. It's a culmination of the preceding ten steps for me that I see through prayer and meditation. The prayer precedes the meditation. Knowledge of God's will for me, the open prayer, and the power to carry it out. And then the twelfth step, which to me isn't a recovery step, because it says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. It tells me what I'm supposed to do with what I've learned. And I'm, if I don't practice the gratitude for what I've learned and am willing to share, I can lose it. I've heard my husband say lots of times, if, you're great, if you forget to be grateful for what you'll have, you'll lose it. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. You may not lose, but you'll lose the value of. And once I've lost the value of something, it might as well be gone entirely. We had three children, as I told you, and they couldn't wait to get away from us when they grew up. And they all went their different ways. And now they all live back in Charlotte. And every Wednesday night when we're in town, we have dinner together. And we go on a family vacation together every year. These children have all been exposed to the program. They're all members of. And when they say take the program home, I want to tell you folks, when you do and the whole family's involved, they won't let you witch about nothing. Because <laughs> they'll say, well, I don't care, Mother, I don't care what you do, but do something. Or when did you go to a meeting, you know, you know. We talk about things that their friends are amazed that they talk to their mother about. Because they, we talk about things as you and I can talk about things. And it's the greatest thing in the world for me. All the loneliness and failure and guilt and unworthiness that I felt as a result of my childhood and through the years of active alcoholism, all of those things are better. I'm weller. I am more sane than I was. I am more whole. I am more healthy. I want to leave you with some lines that someone else wrote that really wrap it all up for me, my perspective today. And those lines say, I know not what the future holds of marvel or surprise. I'm assured alone that life and death, God's mercy underlies. And if my heart and flesh are weak to bear an untried pain, the bruised reed God will not break but strengthen and sustain. No offering of my own I have, no works my faith to prove. I can but give the gift he gave and plead his love for love. I know not where God's islands lift their fronded palms in air. I only know I cannot drift beyond his love and care. And if my faith is vain and if my hopes betray, pray for me that I may find a surer, safer way. And thou, O Lord, who knows thy creatures as they be, forgive me if too close I lean my human heart to thee. Thank you very much.